0: Grab your Bibles if you have them. Uh, If you don't have a Bible when you come in, we have Bibles in the back that you can grab and you can also keep. They're yours that we encourage you to do. You want to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. What we're doing uh, this morning is we're starting a 12-week sermon on the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, which of course is Jesus Christ, And we're going to do that by exploring chapters 5, 6, and 7 over the next three months right before Christmas from the book of Matthew, which is one of the four biographies that was written about Jesus in the Bible, which we commonly call uh, the Gospels. So a little background on Matthew was that he was a tax collector when Jesus called him to come follow him and be one of his disciples. Now Matthew was not a very respected or very righteous dude for being in the vocation that he was in back in that day. He was very hated by the Jewish people. Matthew was an outcast among outcasts. He was not a dude that anybody wanted to have anything to do with, and yet Jesus chose him to be one of his followers. Today it would be like... Uh, church googling IRS agents to find a good candidate for ministry. You know, not something you'd commonly see. But what we see, and what we're going to see this morning, is that God has different ideas about who he picks to follow him. Jesus had different ideas, different qualifications when he picked the crew that was to follow him and then continue after he ascended to heaven and carried on with the work of the gospel. So this morning, as a prologue, actually, to the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to be actually officially starting next week, we're going to go through the first four chapters of Matthew to see how it was that Jesus came on the scene and started his ministry and then preached this very first sermon that we learn about in Matthew and also in Luke. Some of you already, when I said chapters one through four, are like, brother, you've taken 45 minutes to go through four verses before. I know. I know. Pray for me, and pray for you that you'll be home before dinner tonight. The goal, what Matthew is going to be trying to communicate to us this morning is to show us how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that said, hey, there is a king and he's coming, and that God's plan of salvation was always going to be coming to, uh, to fruition. I got a bunch of tongue twister words this morning. So that's kind of the goal of Matthews, to show us those two things. Jesus fulfilled these prophecies that were spoken about him, and he is the culmination and the fruition of God's plan of salvation. And so what we're going to see thematically is simply this, the title of the sermon, From Deathly Shadows Comes a Great Light. That's That's not the eighth book in the Harry Potter series that has not been released yet. This comes from a book called the book of Isaiah. This is chapter 9. We're going to read about this when we get to chapter 4, if that ever happens today. And what we're going to see is that Jesus came from a dark past to become a light for those living in darkness. And we'll see just how God unfolded this elaborate plan to restore the world from sin and destruction by the arrival of a new kingdom in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see what he did. And he kind of lays out a little bit of a storyline for us. He gives us a little bit of of a prologue. And then he gets us into this part where he presents Jesus. So we go from a prologue to a presentation when Jesus is born and how his birth came about. And then we get all the way to how God prepared Jesus for the earthly ministry that he called him to do, which would eventually culminate in his death. So if you're there in Matthew chapter 1, what we see, what Matthew starts out with is a genealogy. And it's basically to show us that a king is coming. You read verse 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now my grandpa did genealogies. And what that meant for me was that on the holidays, he would corner me and he would try to tell me about some historical figure that happened to be in my past, in my family line, that I just begged he would stop telling me about. But what is doing is a little bit different here. He's trying to give us some perspective into the family line that was prophesied that Jesus would eventually come out of and be born into. So on first glance, after you read verse 1 like I just did, this looks like absolutely the most boring Hard to pronounce list of names you would try to avoid reading like forever, right? But if you're a student of the Bible, and maybe you've even attended a few Sunday school classes as a kid, some of these names ring a bell. If we start going down the list, you're going to see Abraham, and you're going to see Isaac, and you're going to see Jacob, and Judah, and Boaz, and Ruth, and Jesse, the father of David, who was the father of Solomon. Uh, and Bathsheba, who is the mother of Solomon, all the way to verse 16, where it ends with this. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Fastest journey through a chapter you guys have ever sat through for sure. Right there. And what you'll see, though, and what I want us to see, because I think this is what Matthew is pointing out to us, if we put a magnifying glass on this list of names, it's that Jesus came from a family line like many of our family lines, but probably a lot worse, probably far more worse if you look back on your family line. This is kind of like a precursor to the Godfather trilogy, if you really get into it. There was scandal, there was murder, there's rape, there's adultery, there's lies, there's cheating. Man, there's just layers upon layers of horrific sin. It's like sitting down with your dad after you're an adult, and he starts telling you about some of the dark secrets about the family. And you're like, you can stop anytime, Like, I'm not interested. That's what's happening right here. And here's some of the things that you'll remember if you read some of the fine print from this genealogy of Jesus. Remember, this is the line from whom Jesus would be born. In verse 2, you read about Jacob. You remember Jacob. He lied and cheated his brother Esau and his father Isaac out of the family inheritance. He eventually has 12 sons who tried to kill one of his other sons, their brother Joseph, because Jacob was a fantastic father and he liked to play favorites. Uh, We read about Judah in verse 2, just a stand-up guy, a stand-up son of Jacob, who happened to impregnate his daughter-in-law Tamar, who gave birth to a child that would carry on the family name to Jesus. We get to verse 5, we read about Rahab, who was a prostitute, who gave birth to Boaz, who married Ruth, a Gentile, a Moabite, somebody who wasn't even in the family line, the Jewish family line. We get to verse 6, and we read about King David, the king, by the way, that was described by God as being a man after his own heart. I mean, that's cute, but he was also an adulterer and a murderer. And he eventually married Bathsheba, who he had an adulterous affair with, and killed her husband, and gave birth to Solomon. In verse 7, the wisest, richest, most prosperous, and polygamist man in human history. I mean, this is a dude who had 700 wives, 300 concubines, eventually walked away from God and came to the conclusion at the end of his life, if you read books like Ecclesiastes, that everything's meaningless. All those women, it's all meaningless. And then we get all the way to verse 16 and we read about Mary. Mary, who in all situations would have been an insignificant young girl who eventually became a social outcast when it was learned that she was pregnant out of wedlock. That's the genealogy in a nutshell. Those are some of the things that we can learn if we just barely dive in to the family tree of Jesus. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, this makes like daytime soaps look like Sesame Street by comparison, right? But here's what we learn. And this is going to be a theme for us this morning. God chose to unfold a rather beautiful design from people who create disaster and disorder in almost every generation. And if you feel like this resembles your family background in some ways, take heart. Because God uses humble beginnings to create hopeful futures for us. Some of you might be first-generation Christians. There's a lot of shame that rises to the surface when you look back at the craziness that surrounds your family background. That was my dad. He was a first-generation Christian. Your family tree feels more like a dead plant in a garden full of weeds, is what it better resembles. But God, again, God has a way of making dead things new again, taking broken things, making them whole again, while creating a new generation of adopted sons and daughters. That's why we call this warehouse thing, redeeming the warehouse. It was such a great clear illustration of what God does for us. I mean, at one point, it was before I lived here, this was a furniture warehouse. Maybe some of you remember that. Then it eventually uh, became an auction where people are buying old things and they're reclaiming them and they're bringing them home and restoring them and making them new again. And then as soon as the auction leaves, we come in and just do the same thing with people. So that's why this project carried the name that it did. When we were talking about God redeeming the warehouse, it was more than just drywall. Part of that redemption is what he's doing with us. The church is about people, not the construction that goes into the building. So we see Matthew coming in. He's saying, look, I want the Jewish people, which is who he primarily wrote this letter for, I want them to understand the family tree of Jesus, who he came from, what was prophesied about him. And then we get into the birth of Jesus. Matthew was saying, a king is coming, a king is coming. And then we get the presentation of Jesus, which is, the king has come. And as Matthew unfolds the story, we're going to see that it just seems to get worse, right? It's like a Jane Austen novel. Sorry, fellas, don't hate me for saying Jane Austen. Where the main characters seem to just go from bad to worse situations before there's any resolution. I mean, you know the storyline's going to turn. Like, you're reading it, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, but it's absolutely painful getting there. It's painful getting there. So when we get into verse 18, we see here that it started scandalous for Jesus. When he comes onto the scene, even before he's born, it starts scandalous before actually becoming murderous, all right? So in verse 18, we read here that Mary was engaged to Joseph before she found out she was with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, nobody thinks much about teenage pregnancies now because they become so common. And we don't have laws to punish unfaithfulness for engaged women or even married women or men. But back then, an engagement or a betrothal, 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 yes, was almost as binding as marriage, right? So if you're engaged, it's like you're married. Which is why, actually, in verse 19, Joseph is actually called Mary's husband. So the punishment here for Mary's alleged infidelity getting pregnant out of wedlock would have been death by stoning. Dude, it's a very different day. It's a very different day. It was back then, it is now. But in Joseph, in Joseph, we see something different. We see a just man, it says, who showed mercy and grace. To Mary, if you continue on past verse 19, even before an angel told Joseph that Mary was innocent, look at what he did. He chose to deny his rights and sacrifice his reputation and life so that Mary could avoid societal shame and actually live. And actually live. And what we see here, even right at the beginning of where Matthew's taking us, is we see a model of Jesus Christ in Joseph. It's hard not to imagine Joseph thinking, what did I sign up for here? I thought I was marrying this girl. I was in love. Then she tells me she's pregnant. I'm thinking, well, all right, but I'm going to divorce her. And then I get visited by an angel who's telling me, no, it's cool. She was conceived by the Holy Spirit. I need you to stay with her. I need you to go through the pregnancy and the birth. I need you to name the child Emmanuel because it means God with us and he's the promised Messiah. And there's going to be like murder and some other things and you're probably going to have a horrible reputation the rest of your life, but go, obey. I mean, Joseph has to be thinking what's happening here? Not even to to consider how crushed and hurt and disheartened he must have been when he learned about Mary's pregnancy. It wasn't his child. But then we see God doing something interesting here with the mercy and grace that Joseph was showing Mary. God showed it to Joseph. He reassures him in verse 20. He says, Joe, the baby is legit. And you are going to be the adoptive father of this child who is the prophesied Messiah in verse 23, where it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So in the middle of this mess, the Messiah is conceived. So first we have this dysfunctional family that looks like something from Housewives of New York or The Sopranos. Then a pregnancy and a birth that would have made the Huffington Post and just lit up the blogospheres of the day with whisperings and gossip, and scandal, and at this point you think, maybe now the kid can grow up in peace, right? Mary and Joseph can raise him, they can throw some birthday parties, get him signed up for soccer, maybe when he's older he'll learn the family business, until we learn not quite yet, not quite yet. Now the story takes a strange twist, and it actually gets much darker. Chapter two starts by telling the story of how wise men from the east came to inquire about Jesus And the word here used for wise men would more closely resemble the word magician. All right? So these were pagan men involved in some form of ancient astrology... ...since it says they were stargazers there in verse 2. So, think Professor Snape from Harry Potter... ...if he'd been given a revelation from God about the birth of Jesus. But what's interesting is you read along chapter 2... The magicians, man, they just didn't roll into town quietly. They started asking where they could find the new king. But when the most powerful king in the world, King Herod, at that time, heard, his response was, dude, what king? That's a paraphrase. But he's saying, what do you mean, king? When I look in the mirror in the morning, I'm that guy. What king are you talking about? And then when he asked his priests and his scribes, They went ahead and they quoted an Old Testament prophecy from the book of of Micah in verse 6 there. And it says this, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. As you can imagine, Herod was not super pumped about this news. It's like when a new guy gets hired at the office, right? And the rumor mill starts turning about who's getting fired now, right? So Herod does what all evil kings do, which was to try and manipulate the situation in verse 7 and 8 and use the magicians as spies to seek out Jesus and bring Jesus back to him. Herod was just covering his bases, right? Not taking any chances. The guy's protecting his throne, right? But then we see something interesting happen in verse 10. The magicians find the baby king and they rejoice, And then they throw him a birthday party, and they give him gifts that were very exclusive to the kind of gifts that you would give a king, and not just any king, but a king that would someday die. But then they don't tell Herod. They don't go back. They don't report on the baby Jesus because an angel warns them in dream to take a different route home. So that's what they do. And what I don't want us to do is miss the bigger picture of what God does here again. Because what we have here is a bunch of magicians who we call wise men. Maybe they were intellectuals. And they thought they were following an astrological sign. But it was actually a divinely appointed star that created a path to a savior. Do you see what God does here? Of all the people God could have led to Jesus, it was a group of Gentile magicians. And you look at that and you just go, what? How is that possible? Why did he do that? Well, it's because from the beginning, Jesus was a salvation for all people, not just Israel. We read about that last year when we started our Ephesians series. Nevertheless, after the magicians leave, Jesus then becomes the target of a government conspiracy. If you read in verse 13, Joseph packs the family up for Egypt Fulfilling another Old Testament prophecy from the book of Hosea there in verse 15 where it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod goes to Bethlehem on a brutal baby hunt. Fulfilling yet another Old Testament prophecy from Jeremiah 31 if you read there in 18. It says, A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. It's impossible to read this without being reminded of the horrific Planned Parenthood videos being released. Which is not what God planned for parenthood to be at all. And yet... What do we see here? We see how God allowed his own child to be spared in this moment so that someday he could die and provide the light of salvation for those who were never born to see the light of day. Real planned parenthood is that God planned to adopt sinful men and sinful women to be his sons and daughters by the shedding of his own son's blood on the cross. Not a real smooth entrance into the world for Jesus. But God had a plan that was slowly coming to fruition. So we get a prologue from Matthew about a king that is coming from a very dysfunctional family tree and then he presents us with Jesus. He's saying, the king has come. And he was somebody that was born into controversy, with even threats being made on his life. And then we get to chapter 3 and we see the kingdom has arrived. And now we see how God is preparing Jesus for his earthly life ministry. Chapter 3, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Another Old Testament prophet, Old Testament prophecy fulfilled for us. So let's take a minute to describe the dude that the prophet Isaiah just said would be the one crying, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. I mean, the way John is described, I mean, this dude was like a character from the Sons of Anarchy, right? I mean, this is just a raw, unfiltered, say-it-like-it-is guy, handpicked by God, the Father, to be Jesus' opening act, right? John was a nonconformist, man. I mean, this is a guy that designed his own clothes made from camel's hair, was on a strict vegan diet, and somehow people just flocked to him. I mean, this was not a complicated guy. His sermons were short and to the point. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message. It was different than what you see in a lot of preachers these days, isn't it? I mean, this is not a guy trying to gain Twitter followers... Not a guy trying to build a platform, watch a TV or a radio ministry. Not trying to make friends and influence people. John had one job. And it was to preach the message that Jesus would eventually come and preach after him. And what I like about John is that he's a good reminder for us that we tend to work a little too hard sometimes trying to doll up the gospel message. Because we can try to contextualize all we want. And we should. But at the end of the day, telling people to repent is never going to be a cute logo on a Christian coffee mug. It just isn't. It's a message that calls people to see themselves as pasty, white, dead people who need the life-transforming news of Jesus to Frankenstein their hearts back to life. Somebody tell me how to print that on a substance t-shirt right now. How do we do that? What do we do? What's, the, what's the logo that we use for that? So one part of John's ministry, I'm sweating like Vodi Bauckham right now, one part of John's ministry was calling sinners to repentance. The other part was calling out the self-righteous, as we see here in chapter 3, who in that day were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, people we'd call the legalists or the religious right, sorry to offend on that one, or the fundamentalists nowadays, people who kept rules while keeping their hearts unchanged. So, John, with language that would have just been absolutely offensive for the day, starts out by calling them vipers. He calls them snakes. He says, you guys are sneaky. You're subtle. You're poisonous. You're to be avoided by everybody that I'm preaching this message to. See those guys? Stay away. Like, their venom will get into you and poison you. He says that in verse 7. Then he also just continues on because he's in a real cheery mood that day. He tells them their family tree is a farce. And that if the fruit of their lives don't start with repenting of their self-righteousness, that they're going to be cut down like a dead tree and cast into fire and burned. I love this dude. I love this dude. We kind of call him a fire and brimstone preacher today. And you know, not everybody is wired or gifted ...for this type of preaching like John was. But, listen to what I'm about to say. Every preacher is called to preach repentance. That's why it's so important to us... ...during our time of singing... ...that we have that time of confession... ...that we come before the Lord... ...recognizing that we need to bow before Him... ...and say, I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I've missed the mark... ...in terms of being all holy... ...and all righteous... So John preaches Jesus, baptizes those who follow Jesus, and then Jesus comes to be baptized in verse thirteen there. Jesus comes to John and asks to be baptized and One of our thoughts is, why did Jesus need to be baptized, and what are we talking about here isn 't baptism for those who need to repent of their sins because they 're sinners and they want to follow Jesus? Well, it is, but here 's what Jesus was doing he was humbling himself. He was filling what he calls the righteous requirements of the law in an effort to do what he required from all of those who follow him. Some of you ask, why do I need to be baptized? Why do do we do this thing? It's like this ancient ritual. You know, you dunk me. I'm humiliated. I come up. I got to get a towel. Like, why are we going through this process? Well, this is why. Because Jesus was baptized. And he modeled this act of obedience for those who turn from their sin and follow him. So we see Jesus being prepared by God. He's starting to preach the news that John preached. And then... God purposed one last thing for Jesus to endure to prepare him before his ministry launched. Like he was sending him to boot camp or sending Jesus to spring training. He said, there's something else that I'm going to put you through so that you are, as it says in Hebrews, a high priest that understands what the people you're dying for are going to be going through. And so we see the temptation of Jesus in chapter 4. We see how the Spirit leads Jesus there in verse 1 to fast for 40 days in the wilderness and be tempted by Satan. So Satan comes and he does just that. He tempts Jesus with things that are our primary temptations. What are the things that tempt us. Well, you can kind of boil it down to a few different things. Number one, food, as we see the first thing that Satan tempts Jesus with. Number two, power, which all of us are drawn to on some level, and then he tempts him with wealth. So basically, food, power, and money. Food, power, and money. I mean, we're probably going to see a little, you know, a few of those things fleshed out before the 2016 elections, right? People that are desiring power, people that have money, people that are filling themselves with something to tell us the reason being why we need to vote for them. Food, power, and wealth. And all three times, all three times, John, uh, Jesus quotes Old Testament scripture verses to resist temptation and defeat it. And he defeats it. He defeats it by the power of God's word which is a great lesson for us when we understand that we are going to be tempted with all three of those things. How do we resist temptation? Well, we do it by the power of God's Word. We do it by resisting temptation, not in our own might, not in our own strength, because our own might and our own strength, we fall back into it every time. We make the mistakes. We fall. We give in. I want the food. I want the power. I want the wealth. But in Christ, we have the ability, because He resisted, we now have that same power to resist. Amen? So in this way, like it says in Hebrews 4, Jesus was tempted like all of us, but just without sin. And what we see from birth to the beginning of his ministry is that Jesus faced just severe opposition. He was made to endure far more than any of us would ever have to endure. He came from a massively dysfunctional family. His birth made the gossip columns. The most powerful man in the world tried to murder him. And he received an on-site visit by Satan himself to tempt him when he was at his weakest point after 40 days of fasting. And yet, what do we see? He persevered. He obeyed God and he persevered. So a question for you and for me. What darkness in your life have you had to endure? And does it feel meaningless? Is it a darkness that ends up pushing you into the realms of despondency? Does it feel meaningless? What we have here is is an answer to the meaninglessness. Jesus can deliver you from the darkness of a meaningless life. Matthew quotes yet another Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah to tell us why in chapter 4, verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This is where Jesus relocates. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus came to be a light to those who are in darkness, which is all of us. And then we see how he carries on with his ministry. He assembles a team of disciples. Men like us called out of great darkness to follow him. We're talking about middle class dudes, fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, if you keep reading ahead... Again, we see Jesus as God the Son doing what God the Father does when it comes through strategic planning for us. Only get people that seem the least capable, the least equipped, and the least qualified to be part of the team. That's what Jesus does. Those seem to be God's qualifications. Men and women, that would seem surprised that God might ever call them to be part of his kingdom. These were just regular dudes. These were the underdogs. I mean, don't worry. If you enjoy a bit more social status, God uses people like you too because the darkness in your life is just as real, just a bit more camouflaged, probably. But that's who God uses. He uses liars like Jacob. He uses prostitutes like Rahab. He uses murderers like David. He uses outcasts like Matthew. He uses godless pagan intellectual magicians like the wise men. He uses nobodies, like Mary. He uses crazy, idiotic, edgy people, like John the Baptist. Forgive me for the idiotic part. That's who God uses. That's who he assembled to bring Jesus into the earth and then surround Jesus to prepare him and then launch his ministry with. Go with me on chapter 4 to verse 23 as we get to the end here. It says this and he went through all Gal- he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You see what's happening there? Where Jesus goes, there is restoration. Where Jesus goes, there is redemption. Verse 24, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Where Jesus goes, there is healing. Verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Then we end here, chapter 5, verse 1, before we pick up next week. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he preached the sermon that we are going to spend the next three months until we get to Christmas, going through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Here's some implications for us as we finish our time. Jesus came from a dark past to become a light for those living in darkness. What a storyline we see here. What a storyline we see that, that Jesus was made to come through so that he could provide us with that level of restoration and redemption. Three things I think we can get from this. One, God redeems our family line by giving us a new birth and a new family that begins with Jesus. God redeems our family line. What do you see when you look back at your past and when you look toward your future, do you see sins that you don't think you can find reconciliation or forgiveness for? Do you see problems that you inherited from your family that you just don't think you can move past? I can't get past this. Man, it was my old man. The guy just was, the guy just, was just a weight on me. He just shaped me in ways I can't seem to get past. And i got a mom that just never gave me a break, that wasn't there, that didn't support me, that deserted me. I don't know if I can move past that. Maybe some of you say that. But what we see in the text today is that in Jesus we have, we have an answer, don't we, to those fears and those doubts and those lifestyles and some of the ways that we feel chained and confined to a family line that still seems to be pulling and yanking on us and trying to drag us down. Well, you see the line that Jesus came through, and you see how he overcame that by the power of God in his life. So we're given great hope that because Jesus was able to come through the family line that he came through and the weights that were pulling at him, because he was able to overcome that with Christ in us, we can overcome those family line issues that we have in our lives, too. God redeems our self-righteousness through repentance to Jesus. You know, on the flip side of this, some of you may have come from intact, church-going, Jesus-loving families. Kind of like the Pharisees may have been. People that depended on their family instead of their faith to justify themselves. Maybe that's you. Maybe you just look at this and you go, I don't know, you know. I was born in church. I went to, you know, I I went to church from an early age. I was baptized. They got me hooked up with the youth group. I went to camp in the summer. I went to winter camp in the winter. We did church midweek. You know, we, we we had all the spring basketball stuff. We did upward. We did all that stuff. We did all that stuff. That's good That's good enough for me, isn't it? That's, that's the thing, right? I've been around this so long. I mean, this has to be what's giving me my life in Christ, isn't it? I mean, I've always been around it. I'm not opposed to it. I mean, I like the blessings I get. I like the food in the cafe. Everybody seems really nice. I've never sat through a greeting time that long in my life when I come to this church. She didn't like that. We'll shorten the time. And all of that is good, but it has nothing to do with whether you know Jesus and whether your self-righteousness has been claimed by the righteousness of Christ through repentance to him. Number three, God redeems our weakness to sin by allowing Jesus to be tempted and have victory over it. You see the levels of redemption that are going on here? People who know Jesus find freedom from the darkness of sin. What Jesus did was show us the power we have to resist temptation through God's word. Here's the thing. All of us will either have a dark past or a dark future. That's it. You have one of two things in your life, a dark past or a dark future. That's what the Bible tells us. I'm not making that up. Those who have turned from their sin and received forgiveness will be people who used to have a dark past, but now enjoy a bright future where they have the privilege of being salt and light to a decaying and dark world. But for those who reject Jesus, you will forever have a dark past that will lead to an even darker future. I'm just saying what John said. But the good news is, and it takes us back to our title, and it takes us back to the prophecy from Isaiah 9, is that from deathly shadows, which is where all of us have emerged when we were conceived in sin, in birth, comes a great light. John 1.5 says, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light is Jesus. He's the fruition of God's great plan. But you know, light is an interesting thing, isn't it, when it comes shining into our lives? And maybe you're catching a glimpse of that light shining into your life, shining into your heart, exposing something. Because light feels unnatural when it first shines in a dark place, doesn't it? It's just not really wanted. It's like when you wake up in the morning, you have to adjust your eyes. It's glaring. It hurts. But it's the only way for us to see. And when Jesus comes into your life, you finally have vision to see what the darkness was hiding. I mean, have you ever tried to figure out a solution to a problem and nothing seems to be coming? I mean, you're going over and Maybe it's like a financing and you're going over and over the figures in your head and you're figuring out this and that and nothing seems to be coming. And then you have that moment, you have that epiphany when you find a way and it's like the light came on, like a light bulb came on above your head. You couldn't see it before and then in a minute, bam, problem solved. Everything's clear now. God always knew how he was going to solve our sin problem. He put together an elaborate plan, but when you look back at the history like the way we did, it's hard not to think, how was this supposed to work? How was this going to come together? And then one day, one day, a poor, insignificant girl named Mary gets pregnant. A child is born, and the solution to the Only problem man has ever had is solved. A light emerged and it came from deathly shadows, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus will lighten your load and he will brighten your path because, listen to what I'm saying, he endured heavy loads and he traveled down dark paths. To make it so. Because of Jesus, it's been done. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the sobering but fantastic message of the gospel. Thank you for bringing your son so intricately through so many varying degrees of complications and sin and scandal to allow Him to come to this earth and to do what none of us really has much understanding of. The Son of God coming to earth and dying a horrific death so that we would not have to die an eternal death. It is such great news So Lord, I ask that that news would change us who have received it. And for those who haven't, that right now they would repent of their sins. They would say, Lord, I have fallen short. I want to be forgiven. I want to know your son. I want him to know me. Lord, I pray that you would continue to remind us of how free this gift is. And how we can walk out of here with so much hope and so much confidence because of what's been accomplished by Jesus on the cross. We don't have to be in despair. We don't have to be drugged down by a family line or a family member or a past that just keeps scraping at our insides. We can find forgiveness. We can find hope. We can find a way forward because Jesus accomplished it for us. Lord, let this hope be ever brightly shining in us as we receive it, as we remember it, as we ask that you would just continue to grow it deeper in our hearts, we pray, and all God's people said. Amen. Let's stand.